Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. 
when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Um, glad to have you this morning. My name is Ben. Uh, I haven't met you. I would love the chance to meet you before you leave here today. I hope you'll come and say hello. Uh, today, we are looking at the crescendo of human history. So we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been doing that for about two years now, um, taking it a verse at a time, paragraph at a time, chapter at a time, and, um, and we are now to the crescendo of the Gospel of Matthew, the crescendo of the whole Bible, but, but it's the crescendo of all of human history. This is what all of human history has been building to. This is a very important story, the most important story, you could say, that you'll ever hear. And it's a true story. And it isn't just some distant historical event that has no bearing on your life. No, it, it has every bearing on your life, and it can and ought to change everything about our lives. And so today we're going to look at why. We're going we're to hopefully see that clearly today. By the time you leave, the Spirit would illuminate our hearts to be able to see this requires the Holy Spirit's work in us. It's not something we can just see. We can't see the beauty in all of this, the glory in all of this, without the Spirit doing work in our hearts. And so before we go any further, we're going to ask for that. We're going to ask Him to do that for us. So let's pray. Our Father, we have been singing about what a glorious God you are and King and how worthy you are of all glory and honor and praise and power and dominion. And, and Lord, you're worthy certainly of the lives of those whom you have made. And this morning we want to understand that, God. We, we need to understand that so that our lives can bring you the glory you're due. So Holy Spirit, we beg you, we ask you to come and to move powerfully among us and in us and to give illumination, shine the light of the glory of God seen in the face of Jesus Christ in this passage. Shine that light into our hearts that we may understand 
that we may believe. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this, um, this passage has had me overwhelmed. Um, I, th- there is so much to talk about. There is so much to see. And I haven't known how to distill it down. <laughs> I had pages and pages and pages written. And this morning I wrote down a one-page outline. And God help me. I, wanna, I want you to see it. I want you to get a glimpse of the glory that's here. But first, we need to understand a little bit of who God is. I want to start there. Um, God is glorious. What do we mean by that? We're using that word a lot. Well, the word glory, it means, means beauty. It, it means majesty. It means greatness. Glory is emanating from the person of God. Some prophets, some people, when they saw it, when they were given a glimpse of it, they described it as light, like the sun. But this is who God is. He's glorious. He's, he's full of, of beauty and, and majesty and worth. He's worthy. He, he's He's full of of weight. He's he's a weighty being, a a worthy being, a beautiful being. And he made everything that is, everything that exists as a way of showing that glory, as a way of reflecting it, showing it. Like when we look at a, a, a beautiful scene, a landscape, a vista, a sunset, what we see We're seeing rays of the glory of God. It's not just in the beauty of nature, a scene, though. This is what you see when you look at math. Maybe you're a math person, and and you look at math, and you think, this is incredible the way that this all works together. That's glory. Or you look at an insect that design and the way that an insect is designed so that it it has a protection against predators and so that it can mate with, you know, and reproduce. That's glory. And he made as the pinnacle of his creation, he made human beings. And he made them uniquely. It says we're different than the beasts. We're, we're different than the rest of the, the animals in that were made in the image of God. Male and female, together, shine forth His image in a unique way that animals don't. And we have glory given to us. There's a glory that's been given to us that we're supposed to show forth, that we're supposed to reflect Men are supposed to reflect and women are supposed to reflect and it's because he's worthy of it. It's because he ought to be showing forth his glory. 
So he made us for this, but the Bible says that in the very, very beginning, human beings were created and, and human beings were delighting in this glory. They were living in relationship with God. They were walking with him in the, in the cool of the day. They in, enjoyed unbroken relationship. They delighted in God. They enjoyed that which is most enjoyable, that which is supremely enjoyable, God himself. And then humans, we chose a lesser glory. And it, and it happened in a garden, and you may be familiar with the story where Adam and Eve are tempted by a food. Food has a glory, to be sure, right? And Eve saw that glory, that it was desirable to eat. It was desirable to make one wise. She saw that and she chose. She exchanged the glory of God for the glory of creation. And we've been doing it ever since. Exchanging the supreme glory for lesser. So God is a glorious being and He wanted human beings to, to be restored to that glory, to have access to that glory. And so He, in the Old Covenant, He sets up this, this whole sacrificial system. And uh, at the end of the book of Exodus, when this whole sacrificial system, this whole tabernacle system is set up in the midst of His chosen people, it says in, in Exodus 40, 34, and the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The focal point of that glory was in the Holy of Holies, just above the Ark of the Testimony. We don't have time to get into all these things, but I want you to know that God placed His very presence, a very potent, glorious presence right there in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle. But here's the thing. God is holy. He's, he is totally pure. In Him there is no darkness at all. There's no evil at all. And so Habakkuk says he has of purer eyes than to look upon evil. He can't even look upon it. And, and so he, he, he has to set up this whole system for people to be able to come into His presence. And so, yes, his, his presence and His glory resides there in the Holy of Holies. But guess what? Only one person can access it in only one time a year. It has to be the high priest. And he has to go through a whole system, a whole, this, this whole system of things to purify himself with blood and everything before he can go in to that place. It's His glory that we were made for. It's His glory that we were made to enjoy. It's His glory that we were made to reflect. But then, 
we come to the new covenant and, and, and God sends His Son, Jesus. God becomes a man in the form of Christ. The Word becomes flesh is the way that John 1, 1 puts it. And Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Hebrews 1.3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus, the Son of God, is walking around on the earth reflecting God's glory in a way that it's never been seen, showing forth God's glory in a way that it's never been seen. The disciples got a glimpse of it up on the Mount of Transfiguration when his flesh was peeled back for a moment and they saw his glory shining forth. This is the radiance of the glory of God. It's what we were made for. What does the cross have to do with all of this? You know, in John chapter 17... We get this glimpse into a conversation between the Son and the Father. This intimate conversation just before the crescendo of all of human history. Just before he's arrested, falsely condemned, and killed. We get this peek into this conversation. And do you know what it's all about? glory. He starts out, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. The hour has come. What hour? The hour of His death. The hour of His crucifixion. What does He mean? Glorify your Son. What is... What is Glorious about death? What is glorious about shame? What's glorious about being stripped and mocked and beaten? And what's glorious about that? We'll see. We're going to see today. He says, Father, this hour, this, this hour that all of human history has been building to, it's here. Now glorify your Son. That the Son may glorify you. So that gives us some interesting insight into this crucifixion. There's certainly something happening here that uniquely glorifies our triune God. So hold that in the back of your mind. What we see when we look at the the way that human beings treated the Son of glory, the, the Son of God, is we see evidence of our fallenness, evidence of our rejecting His glory. When we read about these things, right? He's stripped. He's mocked. 
When you read about these things that the centurion and his guards, those under him, are doing, don't just think, don't separate yourself from that. You need to understand, we need to understand, we would have done the same thing in, in this position. What, what they're doing is they're seeing glory manifest, glory incarnate, and they're rejecting it. They're, hate, they're not just rejecting it, they're despising it. We hate to see it. Isaiah 53.3, which is a prophetic passage. Isaiah 53 is a prophetic passage all about the crucifixion. And it says he was rejected and despised by men. What, what would make you reject and despise this man? He emanated the glory of God. And in our fallen state, we reject and despise the glory of God. That's how we we respond to it in our fallen and sinful state. So, look at this passage and see our rejection of God. Look at this passage and see our disdain for God, mocking Him, spitting on Him, beating Him, choosing a criminal over Him. They derided Him, wagging their heads. That was that wagging their heads. That's something that people did in the first century as as an act of shaming someone else. They're saying, you're not worthy of any honor. All you're worthy of is shame. This is us. This is, this is how we respond to glory in our fallen state. This is what sin is. In its very essence, sin is rejecting God. Rejecting or ignoring Him and the world He created. We use that definition a lot in here. It's rejecting or ignoring His glory. It's not wanting. It's despising it. It's suppressing the truth by our unrighteousness, Romans 1 says. This is what we do. We push down the truth. We don't want to see it. We, we, we don't want to enjoy God or His glory. Romans 3.23 says that All have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. To sin is to fall short of rightly loving, rightly reflecting His glory. Or rightly being who God has created you to be in order to reflect His glory. This is what sin is. It's falling short of the glory of God. That's our problem. So what do we do about it? I mean, what, is, what does God do about it? And, and there's, there's a serious issue here because God, who's holy, who's glorious, who's perfect, who has purer eyes than to look upon evil, he can't just sweep 
our sin under the rug. He can't sweep wickedness under the rug. He's, he's a good judge. Genesis 18, will not the judge of the earth do what is just? And he will. So what does he do? Theologian John Stott says, forgiveness for God is the profoundest of problems. How does a holy and perfect God and a, and a perfectly just judge forgive sin without compromising His holiness and therefore ceasing to be holy? How does He do it? And the cross is the answer to that question. The cross is the answer to that profoundest of problems. So we've seen our separation from God. Now I want to look at his answer to it, which is our substitute. Our substitute. When we look at this passage, when we see what Christ did for us, what we're seeing is a representative from the human race taking what we deserve, our substitute. He took our place. He represented us. How can you say, how can one man represent all of humanity in the same way that Adam, the first man, represented all of humanity when he sinned? When he chose sin, in Adam we all sinned. In Adam we all died. In Christ, we have a new representative. He's the firstborn of a new creation, a new humanity. Yes, our substitute. So when he, when he goes to the cross, what's he doing? Well, he's doing several things. He's taking our curse upon himself. When we sinned, Genesis chapter 3, when human beings sinned and rebelled against God and fell short of His glory, it, it brought a curse upon all of humanity and all of creation. And that curse is a big problem. It's why you see what you see in the world today. You don't believe there's a curse? Read the news. You don't believe there's a curse? Search your own heart. Listen to your own sinful thoughts we are greatly and deeply affected by this curse. But on the cross, Christ took the curse for us. Do you notice the crown He puts upon His head? When He wears that crown, He wears the very fruit of the ground that had been cursed. When sin entered into the world, God pronounced the curse, and the curse said that the ground would bear thorns. The Son of God, the glorious one, crowned with our curse. It says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
As he hung there, he became cursed. The law said, cursed is any man who is hanged upon a tree. He became a curse for us. So that we could be blessed by God. Amen. Our sin brings a curse, but more than that, our sin brings a separation. Adam and Eve, our first parents, walked with God in the cool of the day. They enjoyed relationship with this most glorious and most holy God. But when they sinned, and from that point on, human beings have been separated from God. Unable to enjoy this relationship, unable to enjoy nearness to Him, unable to enjoy Him and His glory. But Jesus on the cross took our place and was separated from the Father. Look at verses 45 and 46. Now from the sixth hour... There was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We sing the verse, the father turns his face away. What does that mean? To put this into perspective, we have to understand that Christ has existed eternally. From eternity past, He's lived in perfect relationship with the Father and the Spirit, and they've had perfect fellowship from eternity past. In that prayer in John 17, He says, Something to the effect of, I want them to see, my, my disciples, to see the glory that I had with you before the world was created. He's had glory. He's had a relationship, perfect union with the Father from eternity past. And on the cross, the Father forsakes the Son. The Son becomes a curse for us. The Son bears the whole weight of responsibility for our sins upon Himself. He absorbs the wrath of God. The Father turns His face away. He forsakes His Son. He, as our substitute, takes not only the curse, not only our sin, but our separation. He takes that upon Himself He is our substitute, our representative, our new Adam. And so, as our representative, He takes all of the penalty for sin so that we don't have to. But in exchange, He gives us His righteousness. He gives us His perfect obedience. He lived the life that we should have lived. Have you ever wondered why Jesus gets baptized? I used to wonder that. Why does he get baptized? John the Baptist wondered that. Right? 
When, when John's baptizing people, baptism was for the forgiveness of sins, and here comes a man who's never sinned. And he comes walking up to John, and John says, I, I should be baptized by you. I can't, I can't baptize you. And what's Jesus say to him? It's fitting. Now, it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. I've got to do this. Because I'm living the life that human beings are supposed to live. His perfect obedience, his perfect fellowship with the Father, and his perfect payment for our debt, for the debt that our sins incurred. It's all credited to us. That's what it means that Christ is our substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He, the Father, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We give Him our sin. He gives us His righteousness. It's the greatest exchange in the universe. So on the cross as God's Son was rejected and despised, He was paying for all of our rejection and all of our despising of God and His glory. He represented us in His payment and ultimately He represented us in death because... The penalty of sin is death, and this is what we all owe for our sin. We owe death. That's the penalty. That's the sentence for our sin against a glorious and holy God, and He paid it in full. This is why He died. He died to pay our fine. For the wages of sin is death, it says in Romans 6.23. What we've earned with our sin is death. And then it goes on, but the free gift of God is what? Who knows it? Eternal life. Why doesn't it say, but the free gift of God is forgiveness? That is the part of the gift, right? Forgiveness is a part of the gift. Why doesn't it say the free gift of God is justification? We're justified before God. That's certainly a part of the gift, isn't it? But that's not what the Spirit-inspired Scriptures say right here. The free gift of God is eternal life. What is eternal life? Well, Jesus tells us in His prayer, John 17, 3, in that intimate conversation before the climax of all human history, He speaks to the Father And he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you. This is eternal life, that they know you and the Son whom you've sent. Eternal life is a relationship with God. And that brings me to the final point this morning. We've seen our separation and our substitute. I want to look at our satisfaction 
And I'll explain what I mean by that. When Jesus did what he did for us on the cross, it wasn't just to provide for us forgiveness for our sins or justification or clear conscience or to do away with our shame while all of those are wonderful gifts of God. Those are all means to a greater gift, to a greater end. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. There it is. There's that substitute. That He might bring us to God. This is the purpose of the cross. This is why He did what He did. This is why forgiveness is good news and justification is good news and pardon is good news. This is why. Because if you have those things, you can get God, the greatest gift in all the universe, the very one that we were made for, the only one who can satisfy our souls. Praise God. This is why the gospel is such good news. John Piper has said the greatest good of the good news is God gives us himself. That's why Jesus died. To give us eternal life, a relationship with God. That's why heaven is heaven. That's why it's good. It's because in heaven you get to do what you were made to do for eternity. See the glory of God and enjoy the glory of God and rightly reflect the glory of God. You can be in relationship with Him. But you don't have to wait. You don't have to wait till heaven. I want us to look at this passage again. Verses 51 on. Look at what happens. Look at actually verse, verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And immediately what happens? And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs also were opened and many of the bodies of the saints who'd fallen asleep were raised. The moment that he breathes his last breath, the moment that his spirit leaves his body, what happens? What's the very first thing that happens? The veil that separated humanity from the very presence of God, the place where his glory dwells, that veil is torn, not from bottom to top, from top to bottom. God Himself tears the veil, opens 
the way. That's the good news. <laughs> that the way into the very presence of God has been opened for us. Every barrier has been removed. Our sins have been forgiven. Our shame has been covered. Our conscience has been cleansed. We are justified. We have been made holy. We have been made right. Why are all those things good? Because now we can come into the presence of a holy God and enjoy Him forever. The cross is the key to full and everlasting joy. We get a little further commentary into this in, in Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19, or starting in verse 18, it says, Where there is forgiveness of, of these, of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, the holy of holies, where the presence of God is, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near. This is what's been purchased for us And we don't take advantage of it. Let us draw near to the one, the only one who can satisfy you fully and forever. In his presence is fullness of joy at his right hand or pleasures forevermore. Don't we all crave that? Yes. But what do we do in our sin? We turn to inferior glories, inferior joys. When the most glorious one is being offered to us. I want us to end by taking a look at the response of the centurion. Look at, look at verse 54. Now, before I read this, I want to remind you who this is. The centurion, it says the centurion and those who were with him. He's the one in charge of the soldiers. So this is the, the guy in charge along with the soldiers who've, who've mocked him. They put a purple robe on him. They gave him a reed in his hand. They bowed down before him. They put the, the crown of thorns. They mocked him. They shamed him. They beat the thorns into his head with the reed. They spit on him. They're the ones who made him carry the cross. They're the ones who nailed the nails, the spikes through his hands and his feet. This is who we're talking about. That's who we're talking about. And listen to what happens. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw 
when they saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. I believe they were converted in that moment. Now, here is, here is what conversion is. It is suddenly seeing what you have rejected and despised your whole life as being the most glorious, most beautiful, most wonderful treasure in all of creation, in all of the universe. They saw for the first time what was always right in front of them. That's conversion. These men who just moments before, hours before, had been getting their joy from what? From rejecting and despising God. That's what was giving them joy. Suddenly, they were awakened to an inferior to a superior joy. John Piper calls conversion the merciful destruction of inferior joy. The merciful destruction of inferior joy. I don't know your stories, all of them, but I know for me that as I was grappling with the gospel and trying to understand it as a college student, miserable in my sin. You know what I did for joy? I went out in bars, crammed with people, that stunk like cigarette smoke and vomit. And I spent a whole bunch of money so that I could drink something that would put me out of my mind and do things I wouldn't remember the next day. That was my joy. That was the pinnacle of my joy. That's what I lived for week in and week out. Do you see it? We Sin is falling short of the glory of God. It's rejecting and despising that which is most glorious and getting joy out of it. And conversion, it's the moment that you see. And only the Holy Spirit can do it for you. But He does it through the gospel. He does it through hearing this story, through seeing the crucified Son, and suddenly you see He is glorious. This gospel is amazing. He's holy. He doesn't compromise His holiness. He pays for my sin completely. And He can forgive me and bring me in. That's the best news in all the universe. So how do we respond? We stop rejecting the greatest gift in the universe. We stop stiff-arming 
the one that made us for himself. We stop rejecting and ignoring God in the world he created. And we turn to him and we say, God, you're the only one that can satisfy my soul. And we cry out with a confession just as this centurion did. Truly, this was the son of God. That's how we respond. And then we live our lives as if it's true. We follow Him. We listen to Him. We obey Him. We reflect His glory and we enjoy His glory now and forever. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for what you have done. My mind goes to the scene that John saw in Revelation of the Lamb who was slain, standing there, is worthy of all honor and glory and power and dominion, receiving the worship that you're due from creatures in heaven and angels innumerable and people from every nation and tribe and language and tongue. And Lord, Jesus, your Father, He did answer your prayer. He did glorify you. And we see you hanging on the cross and we see the greatness of the glory of your grace for sinners like us. And we stand in awe and we worship you. May you receive worship that you're due. In Jesus' name, amen.